You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Timothy Muirhead and I will be your host for today. We have something special for you with this episode as we are going to be re-podcasting an episode from the always awesome Sound Girls podcast. If you are not familiar with the Sound Girls podcast, then I'm happy to be the one to tell you all about it. Regular listeners of Tonebenders will for sure get something out of listening to the Sound Girls podcast as well. Hosts Katie and Daria talk to guests from all over the audio spectrum. In addition to audio post-production pros, they have guests from live audio, theatrical, music recording, and just about anywhere else you can think of in the audio world. I learned something from every episode I've listened to, so make sure you give it a try and hit subscribe while you're there. Before we get to the interview they did with Kirsten Mate, I want to tell you about the Sound Girls Virtual Conference coming up December 4th and 5th, 2021. They have an astounding 104 talks and sessions happening over two days. And if you sign up, you get access to all the videos of everything that happened, so you won't miss anything. At $100 for the two days, it's an unbelievable value. This is the first annual Sound Girls virtual conference. Two days of sessions in film and video post-production, live sound, recording arts, broadcast, and more. There will be plenty of networking opportunities as well. To sign up and find more information, check out the events tab at soundgirls.org. If you need financial assistance to attend, please let them know by emailing soundgirls at soundgirls.org. Grab your tickets today. I hope to see you there. Now, let me tell you about the guest we're going to hear from today. Kirsten Mate is an award-winning sound designer that has worked for Skywalker Sound for 25 years. Her credits include Mulan, The Midnight Sky, Ready Player One, Tomorrowland, Jarhead, and many, many others. Among the directors she has worked with, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Brad Bird, and Walter Murch. Not a bad list there, eh? In addition, she recently completed the sound design for Disneyland's Batu Galaxy's Edge. I'm going to throw it over to Katie from the Sound Girls podcast now. Take it away, Katie. I guess let's start at the beginning. Uh, Kirsten, we're curious how you got interested in sound in the first place and how you found your way to your career. Well, I, I like to say that it was... My career felt, feels like a very, very lucky accident. Um, I started out with getting into sound when I was a kid like a real little kid, I went and saw Close Encounters in the movie theater. And in, at a certain point, you know, the mothership comes overhead and all the little, and then another part, all the little um, spaceships kind of follow the mothership and all this stuff. And I held onto the edge of my seat and the whole thing, the whole theater's rocking with sound and you hear the little theme song, you know, what they're trying to communicate through music. And I said, I love the sound of this movie. And I was a little kid. So that was kind of where sound, I did really notice sound with film um, and how much it added to the experience. That experience would not have been the same without that amazing, you know, play of of sound and music and the mix was really great and all that. And then uh, when I was older and when I started in high school, I was dead set on becoming a director and getting into film or becoming an astronaut. So (laughs) I had two things. 
Um, but I, I really didn't have the science grades to be an astronaut at the time. And I couldn't fly jets. I went to the Air Force and wanted to sign up to become a pilot for then operational space shuttle. And uh, they said, no, women aren't allowed to train on the jets. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that changed. That changed probably 10 years later, maybe a little less. Um, but, uh, I, uh, so I was like, well, forget that. <laughs> so I'm not going to go to the air force and not do what I want to do. So, um, I went, uh, to school for film and I started out as uh, just a film major and I didn't end up loving the program where I was at, which is San Francisco state. And they were much more experimental and I really liked narrative. I like telling stories I like getting points across. I like, you know, entertaining people. I like world building. Anyway, so I went through uh, the two years of that and then changed my major to audio production in the broadcast and television department and ended up doing sound design for theater and recording a lot and did radio shows and radio plays and did the sound design for those and did the whole thing for that. And then um, got out of college and luckily ran into a friend of mine. They wanted an intern for a job in the Bay Area for, at that time, at Salzance Film Center. And I met someone there, Jennifer Ware, who was a sound supervisor and sound designer back then, way back then. And in the 90s, and she ended up not having the job open, but she met me and liked me and really wanted to get more women in the business because there was very few women, especially in sound effects. And so the next time she had an internship, she could point me to, she did, and then later actually found me a paying job because the internship paid almost nothing. I And then I... They just liked me, <laughs> so I, I, mean, I just I lucked out. Um, I worked really hard. Uh, they and they liked that. They liked that I wanted to learn all the time. So I just lucked out at my getting my foot in the door. And then it ended up that I just ended up at a lucky time, also, where everybody was switching from mag based, which they had been using since the 1930s to edit films, to digital based. Um, and with uh, samplers and sequencing programs first, and then later with Pro Tools. So I taught myself all that stuff as fast as I could. So I became more valuable, <laughs> and and then I um, and then I was valuable. So they kept me around, you know. And I just I just lucked out in lots of different ways. Um, so I always feel bad saying oh, you just got to do this or just got to do that. I I like to tell people it's just seeing opportunities where you can and and, um, there's a lot of luck involved. And then wherever there's opportunities, really grab them. So, yeah, that's really good advice. And pray for something lucky. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I mean, you, you were networking, essentially, which I think seems to be a really good avenue for a post audio. Yes. And, um, you know, it is, it's a pretty small community. So you have to like 
talk to and meet as many people as you can. Um, you never know if, like when you're starting out, if somebody you meet um, that doesn't have anything for you at the moment will remember you a year from then or whatever. So it's it's pretty good idea just to like have meetings if you can or visit somebody or, you know, people have gotten jobs by talking to sound designers and supervisors like after conventions or talks or, you know, whatever. So. I hate to say all that because then I get a flood of <laughs> emails, <laughs> but, um, and I can't, you know, I can't usually help people, but you never know if somebody sticks in your mind or you just, it, it just happens to be the lucky time. So, you know, I always encourage people to just reach out and network and some people are much better at that. So, and really good at that. Um, it's definitely a skill to cultivate because it'll just come in handy later in your career because we're all freelance based. So you always have to be networking anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, so you are a freelancer at Skywalker. And so at one point you were working at three places before it exclusively became Skywalker, right? Yes, that's true. So can you tell us about that and kind of uh, getting into Skywalker, I guess, exclusively at this point, right? Yeah. So, um, I started out at the Saul Zance Film Center, which was connected to Fantasy Records and run by Saul Zance. And um, that was an awesome, for me, an awesome place to start out with. A lot of it is because the crews were, the, the budgets were a little smaller a lot of times. I mean, there were great movies, amazing movies that came out of there, but they weren't like, the crazy Spielberg effects movies, those would go to Skywalker. Anyway, but be, and we would get a lot of smaller movies and some documentaries. And because of that, I got a lot of experience working on all aspects. So I learned, I don't think it, I really practiced at it, but I learned how to basically cut dialogue and cut it in lines, you know, and things like that. I've cut fully, I've spotted fully, you know, I've pretty much I've done all the different jobs and I was able to learn a lot and learn the process. Um, but I think learning all the different jobs of post-production is really great once you become um, either a supervisor or a sound designer, because then you know what goes into each part of it. Um, and it's just a it, it's great to think about like what's what that other person is doing when even when you're just doing the sound design or just doing cutting sound effects so um that you know what the other department can take care of or what you should ask of the other departments or what you should give them a heads up to you know or things like that so that was awesome and also um i met a lot of great people there and i worked on wonderful films there like I worked on The English Patient and met Walter Murch there and worked with another woman who is the supervisor for his films, Pat Jackson, who is awesome. She was a great supervisor uh, and really took care of her crews and, and brought people along and helped Walter make his vision. So that was an awesome experience. And then from that, I went to uh, Coppola's studio Zotrope. San Francisco studio Zotrope at the time was still in operation. And I worked on a few shows there. Um, I worked on a Coppola show uh, 
And then later I did mostly through an attached building sound to Zotrope. I did um, the updates of Apocalypse Now, the first Redux version, and um, did updates to Godfather 2, uh, stuff like that. So that was... That's pretty major. Yeah, it was awesome. Apocalypse, the Redux version version of Apocalypse Now is an amazing experience. It was super compressed. They brought me on at the end to like basically fix a whole bunch of stuff that needed to be done right away. So, and they're like, here... We we did all these uh, new parts of the beach landing, and we did a whole new scene here, and there's a whole new monsoon, and I'm like, what the heck? Okay, how do, how long do I have? Like originally, Apocalypse Now had what like 56 weeks of post editing, you know, <laughs> and I figured long time. I figured by the minutes they gave me that I would would was supposed to have like 23 weeks, but instead I got three, so. <laughs> So I just jammed through all that stuff as fast as I can. And we worked with the original material wherever I could find it. And that was like super forensic. And I only had half of it. Super fun experience. And I'm, you know, I'm always glad I got to do that. Um, Yeah. Wow. So wait, you just like totally chained to your desk for those three weeks, basically? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Um, and then, yeah, and then they took it back up to where they mixed the original Apocalypse that I worked in a few times, which was up at um, Coppola's place. He had his mixing studio up there in Napa, and um, they took it up and, and Walter mixed it again. You know, it was, it was super fun um, and just really fun to listen to. It's still such an amazing track and so inventive. So um, that was great. So I did that for a little while. And then, um, then at that point started going back and forth between Saul Zant's film center, which was still doing, still did a number of films like K-19 I did there and then started working at Skywalker part, you know, part-time. So, um, oh, and let's see. And then at Zotrope, I was working for, uh, on Lassa Hellstrom's films. I did Chocolat, and um, that was super fun. So the Zotrope projects were really fun, or at that time they were done at Sound. The name of the company was Sound, which was attached to Zotrope, and only pretty much the Coppola projects themselves would be at the Coppola studio part of it. And then I went back and forth to Skywalker and started working, luckily, with Gary Rydstrom, I did a few films there before working with Gary. And then I think the first film I worked with Gary was on a movie called The Yards that I worked on for like a year and a half off and on. And he came on later. So that's kind of how I started working with him. And then I worked on AI and started working on a number of films with Gary. So, And then at a certain point... The Salzance Film Center closed down and Zotrope closed down and Sound closed down. And so I'm only at, at Skywalker, but I mean, not so bad. I love Skywalker so much. Oh my much. God, not bad at all. <laughs> kind of legendary. <laughs> yeah, not a bad thing. I mean, you know, to only be at Skywalker is pretty. I think they're fine, right? <laughs> right. I mean, you never know. This business is so weird. Yeah, but... Um, but yes, uh, and, and 
it's such an awesome place to work. I and I love the projects there, and um, so all the talent has been concentrated in that one that one facility. It's been great. Yeah. Oh my god. So like, obviously, I mean, did it, it did it stick out among the three? I guess in terms of the types of projects they took on, I guess because they were bigger budget, were they? Um, you know, they all have a different flavor. Like, I can't say that all my projects at Skywalker are the best of the films I've worked on because I, at Salzance, I worked on three John Waters films, which were amazing. And I worked on the first Wes Anderson film. He was, you know, our second Wes Anderson. He was pretty unknown. So I did Rushmore at Salzance. Um, and then I did English Patient at Salzance, and we did K nineteen, which was um, which was a great a great experience and a big budget film. And so Skywalker now certainly gets mostly super big budget, like and we do the Marvel films, we do the Pixar films, all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's just kind of different flavors. It and um, you won't get a I don't know. I don't work on many documentaries at Skywalker, although they are now doing a lot more documentaries at Skywalker and doing smaller budget things, which is awesome. So as far as you know, you are the first woman to be credited with a sound designer credit. That's right. Yeah, As far as I know, on a, on a feature film. On a yeah. feature film. And, well, although I don't know where I would look. I never looked into television or whatever, but in 2005... I did the sound design for Jarhead, which was being edited by Walter Murch. And at that point, I I was like, uh, I wonder if anybody, uh, any other woman has ever gotten a credit for sound design. Because at that point, I was the only sound designer I knew of even working in on the West or East Coast. So... You know, it doesn't mean that there weren't women doing that job, but uh, I was I looked for women who had gotten the credit on the show and I couldn't find any. Um, There were no other women sound designers at Skywalker or at any of the Southern California studios. And I didn't know of any on the East Coast in New York. So I was pretty excited. And then I was also excited because it was the first film that Walter had given anyone a sound design credit on besides himself because, you know, he and Ben Burt invented, (laughs) invented sound design or sound montage, you know, as, as Walter called it originally. And, um, so even on the later films, there just was, you know, talented Mr. Ripley and K-19, there was no sound designer credited, uh, because he was editing and sometimes mixing as well. And then on Jarhead, he wanted to hand that over, of course, with a lot of <laughs> a lot of coaching. But he wanted to hand over uh, the sound design to someone and he handed it over to me. So um, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I So what what was involved in that coaching and kind of the approach uh, of the sound design for Jarhead? Well, he was always, you know, he's of course very articulate about everything, but he's also, he was also very, um, detailed and articulate about the sound and he had ideas that were out of the box 
And so we would have just discussions on that. So it wasn't always, it wasn't just me coming to him with the ideas all the time. It was kind of back and forth. Um, and he definitely, of course, had all these ideas that he wanted me to follow and avenues he wanted me uh, to follow. I, um, I find that like with, for example, student films, um, sound effects editor and sound designer seems to almost be interchangeable. Mm. So I guess I'm interested in, in features, uh, how that term is, I guess, distinct as you understand it. Well, it has definitely um, become not as distinct, which I feel is a shame. And I feel like there's lots of people being credited as sound designers now. And the, I have, I'm very um, old school about how I feel about who should have that credit. So to me and the way sound design was, especially throughout the 90s, and early 2000s is the sound designer was the person who created unusual sounds or signature sounds or sounds that for something new in the film or, you know, something was germane to that film specifically. Plus, they would be able to complete the, the director's vision of how that film wanted to be presented. So sound design not only encompassed just sound effects, but it could also encompass like decisions made in the mix. Like, how are we going to play this scene? You know, or is it just going to be music or is it just where the dialogue is going to be uh, all the way in the background and we're just going to be immersed in something or, you know, in the tone of the entire thing um, and ideas if they have to do special uh, stuff for the ADR or for voices. So it's it's more of an all-encompassing thing that uh, is more kind of thoughtful to world building and storytelling. So just for me, just creating some unusual sounds, uh, that's kind of how it's been morphed into that like, you know, it'll be just if you need have a creature in a film that you're going to have like two sound designers and what they do is just some creature vocals, which is hard, you know, but it, the sound design of the whole film is so much more than that. So, um, I would love it if, <laughs> if it got back to that. The sound design is, is more about the entire, it's, it's more of a production design in a way of the whole film, but in auditory ways. In the same vein, um, I want to ask about the um, Disneyland. Is it a ride or? Um... Oh, the Galaxy's Edge? Yeah. So um, Galaxy's Edge is an entire land in Disneyland that they made, mm -hmm. especially for Star Wars fans. It's all based on the Star Wars universe. Okay. So it's a big deal. So they built, you know, at Disneyland, they have different lands. They have Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. And so they built... Galaxy's Edge, which is an entire section that is all devoted to the Star Wars universe. Um, and it is, a, they made a village on a, a, called Batu on another planet. So Imagineering at Disneyland are the people that design the, the parks and your experience and what everything looks like and all that kind of stuff. So they designed this entire village and then they added two rides into it, and then 
there's, but there's also like places to walk and things to do and places for eating and all this kind of stuff. So, um, I and myself and Gary Rydstrom ended up doing the entire village sound design, which was immersive and, you know, speaker specific. So you could put a creature in one speaker, like one place. Um, and he ended up doing all the wonderful, like kind of flora and fauna atmospheres and they change throughout the day. So if you go in the morning, it sounds very different than at dusk. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, you can hear animals walking around. It sounds like they're walking around in the distance and big things walking around and creatures and bugs and all sorts of stuff. And then I ended up doing pretty much all the mechanical stuff. So they have lots of, you know, props kind of there that would help run that world, like atmospheric generators and communication devices and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so I ended up doing all the sounds for all of those throughout the whole park, plus the vehicles, you know, the spaceships, plus it's a spaceport. So you're constantly hearing uh, different spaceships come in and jump into hyperspace out of view and just like all that stuff. So, so it's create, we, create, we created a whole world for you to walk around in. Um, and there's, it really was one of an amazingly fun job um, and a dream for me, a dream job because I love D- Disney Imagineering. Um, I think they're, it's so amazing what they come up with and how they create these experiences and worlds. And they're just really good at it. it. And they were awesome to work with and wonderful people. So, okay. Wow. I mean, that's awesome. It's so cool. Did you use like a piece of paper? Or are you just building all in pro tools? Like how do you conceptualize? Um, it was off and on over a year and a half. Yeah. Um, with the majority of the work where they they called it a mix, but it's not a typical feature film mix like I would think of a mix. And that was going on for, I think that was like a month and a six weeks, maybe a little longer, where we would go, we would be there in the park and and work, um, uh, mixing where there was a a person who was the mixer of the thing and they would take our sessions and we would say, I intended this to go here and this to go there and this to happen. And they would mix that in pro tools, do a pro tools mix of it. Um, and then assign everything out to sometimes 40 speakers. And then, uh, they would have, and then it gets programmed into their show controllers. So, so that it runs all the time, you know, without a pro tools there. Um, so that was super fun. That was, you know, a, I would work a couple weeks in the parks and a lot of times was at night and then, and then go back. How big is the uh, Skywalker library in terms of number of sound effects? It's enormous. It's just enormous. So we're, we're very fortunate that, um, you know, th- that we've all kind of shared with each other over the years if we've done anything cool, we'll put in there. Um, so we're just, we're very lucky that 
one that we're able to access it, that it's Skywalker hosts it and everything, but also that so many of the talents just want to freely share um, and help each other with recordings or, you know, sound design that they've done for things that, you know, for just, they just did off the cuff or who knows. Uh, That's been super amazing that we have this enormous library to start with. And then every time we record, we're adding to it. So it's pretty, it's constantly evolving and constantly being, getting bigger. And it is funny. Sometimes you'll say, You'll type in something you're sure is there, and you're like, I can't believe after all these years we don't have that sound. <laughs> then you gotta go do it. <laughs> yeah. You should like take bets. No, I'm not endorsing gambling, but like take bets go. before we search for something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll yeah. Yeah. I just like, oh, <laughs> right. what do you think? Coffee. Coffee's on me <laughs> right. next week. If, <laughs> right. If that isn't there, <laughs> I am curious about um, uh, recording. And uh, maybe we can actually talk about a specific example. Is there like, um, is there a s- sound design credit you got that you're just so proud of how you conceptualized it? And maybe we can talk about the experience of getting that together and the recording that went into it. I'm super proud of Tomorrowland. I feel like I did a bunch of stuff that was really weird and like strange and out of the box. Um, and luckily, the person, you know, is Brad Bird, who's a great director. Um, and the person really driving it was the picture editor, Craig Wood. And he loves sound. And he just loves wackadoodle stuff. So, <laughs> so he, you know, he was fine with trying lots of stuff. And he was also fine with saying, I hate that, you know, and that's great. So he's very communicative about like what worked for him and didn't work for him and also perfectly fine to try take leaps, you know, into stuff. So recording wise, uh, there's, I don't know if you know the film, there's future, there's a, a part where the kid in the past makes, tries to make a jetpack, And then later in the future, he gets to wear a jetpack that, works and all this stuff. So for the jetpacks, the first jetpack, we recorded a, a vintage canister vacuum and like, and I made it into like this jet and, but it was still sounded totally goofy and like a, a canister vacuum from 1954. And then later <laughs> I recorded a Dyson, one of the Dyson ones with these contact mics and then revved it up and down and did all this stuff with it and mm-hmm. then built that into the future jetpack with jet sounds. Yeah. And so that was super fun because I connected the two with vacuums. Yeah, I love that. The future of vacuum cleaners. Yeah. Right, right. And so it was just kind of fun. And I'm sure no one notices it, but it worked really great for the jetpack sound. Um and the on and off worked really great. Yeah. And um, so that was super fun uh, to record those kinds of things. And then sound design wise, I mean, that's part, partly that's kind of sound design. I like connected a storyline in the movie, but also because we were doing Atmos and Atmos was still kind of new, uh, 
what I ended up doing is really splitting up sounds and putting them in unusual, using them in unusual ways and using the Atmos in unusual ways. Um, at one point, there's something spinning on the screen that's that we're traveling with something spinning out of control. So I split the sounds of it up into the upper um, array speakers and into the the regular LCR speakers in the front. And the sounds literally traveled up and down the screen above you and in front of you to really get a lot more motion and chaos out of that kind of sound. So that was kind of an example of using the Atmos technology to add to that sound a lot more than would have been there with just like a regular 5-1 mix. Um, so just a very quick and brief uh, explanation of Atmos, if you don't mind, for people who might not know. So Atmos is Dolby Atmos, and it's a system of um, speakers, basically, and intertwined with a system of the speaker management. So basically, when you mix in Atmos or for Atmos, you can assign sounds not only in a 5-1 array, like, you know, LCR, LSRS, and a sub, or 7-1, um, but you can also assign stuff into an array of speakers that are literally in the ceiling or um, an extra set of speakers that are on the proscenium sides of the screen, which is where music sounds really beautiful. Um, instead of being spread out into surround on the side of you, it's, it's still up in the front, but it's also kind of off to the side, so it's very encompassing. Or you can individually pinpoint a speaker and do things like crawl a sound down the wall. So instead of just rolling stuff into the surrounds, you can say, I'd like it to go to proscenium, the left proscenium, and then the speaker in back of that, and the speaker in back of that, and go from point to point. So it sounds very much like something is moving past you instead of just kind of rolling past you with surround. I think Atmos is a really good way to provide more space for sounds so you don't have to have such a wall of sound that is mushy. Providing space for stuff means that not everything needs to be as loud all the time. That's what I feel like. Like I feel like movies uh, are uh, big effects movies so many times are just these walls of loud sound and and they want everything in the kitchen sink in the that's in the frame to have a sound in it. And you just have no room anymore. Um, it, it's nice to provide a space that you can point your attention to something specific on the screen. Like, you know, oh, there's our hero's car, you know, and then we can move the other sounds kind of off to one side or, you know, around you in some way so that we can really pay attention to the thing that is the plot point <laughs> you know Dolby originally was made to reduce your noise floor so it was an attempt that you can get cleaner quiet sounds but instead movies I feel have just gotten louder and louder and more and more right. shoved in there because yeah. 
there's less noise floor, so you can just shove more sound in there. <laughs> and it just feels like the opposite of what Dolby was supposed to do in the beginning. Can we talk about Ratatouille? Like, is that cool? Like, sure. what was that like? Because obviously it's just like such a good movie. And and they were very specific with the cooking process. So I just wondered, um, did they push that on the sound team, a very specific approach? Yes. Although I have to say I was not the sound designer in Ratatouille. Randy Tom was. But it was, yeah, it was all about getting cooking sounds right and texture. Um, I know. And and sense of place. So I did like, there's like a, a scooter chase and all that stuff. So you want to make, you want to make it sound like Paris. You want to make it sound like an, a European, a European city, um, instead of San Francisco or whatever. Um, so that was fun doing all that kind of stuff. And, um, there's a very sweet movie. Uh, but yeah, and it's, and then it's all about the cooking and, I love the scene where he they're learning in the apartment and he's controlling him kind of the first time and they're cooking. So putting all that together was really fun um, because it becomes like a little dance and they, you know, they're dancing with each other, but it's cooking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's such a good movie. It's so everything came together like flawlessly <laughs> no no i can't i can't get it it's just it makes no sense like what is his hair attached to his uh, nervous system i don't know no i couldn't get over that by pulling your like, hair yeah yeah you suspending the disbelief is very important i just couldn't suspend mine so <laughs> You're like, i don't get it yeah, i don't just get like, it how it wasn't the rat it was the hair control yeah or <laughs> no the rat controlling the hair yeah, but why so specifically? Like, how did he know if when he was pulling his hair wet? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's best not to really think about. Things I know that it was just no. completely in an animated film because <laughs> yeah, no, a, a rat being a talented chef, perfectly fine with that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could wrap, start winding down, but I, I am curious about, Kirsten, what um, inspires you? Is there anything strange that inspires your sound approach in your life? Well, I think what would inspire my sound approach is kind of what I've been talking about, which is that I would like to tell stories, and part of that is creating space for what's important in a sonic landscape. Because you want to hear what's important and you want to concentrate on that and making that shine and making that the jewel of the moment um, is kind of, for me, more important than covering 3,000 things all happening at once, which nobody, your brain can't process that much, you know? Um, and part of, part of that problem is like now everything, even live action films are so computer enhanced um there's so much cgi that they just keep filling the screen and keep filling the screen with things happening and uh the people making the film watches these frames so many times they just get used to that and they don't i I don't think they can kind of separate themselves to somebody viewing it the first time and what actually they can pay attention to so i love to make it the story 
and, and say, okay, what do you really want to tell story-wise in this moment? What's the important thing here? Let's, let's concentrate on that and then do an unusual sound for that. So I love, I love to make things that are not typical, but sometimes that's hard. A lot of times in movies, they want a, a shortcut sound. Like a big creature always has to sound like a roar, you know, and I wish sometimes they could let go of that. But um, the shortcuts definitely are able to tell something to the audience quickly. This is dangerous. It sounds like a bear. You know, who knows? It sounds like T-Rex. But um, I love when they let me go and kind of put some unusual stuff that is more interesting to hear that people are not used to, especially with like sci-fi or fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. I mean, so I hope you get something really exciting soon where you can do such things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you're excited for in the future or something you hope for your career? I don't know. I'm, I'm excited. The last couple things I've worked on, the schedules have been longer, which is awesome. Uh, it felt like schedules got very compacted and you just don't have the time to record and create and try things and discard them and then and then do different things and change stuff. Um, and I feel like that's part of the process and that's part of the way to get something that everybody loves. So I'm excited now that that I've been on the last couple projects where the there's more time to do that kind of stuff um, and to try out stuff and, and get feedback. Um, so, and uh, you know, I, I would love to do another sci-fi film that that's always what I want. <laughs> so, Well, I suppose like sci-fi must be when you have the most freedom, would you say? Yeah, I'm just, and I'm also, you know, I feel like I'm stronger in some ways of doing things uh, of some things I do. And, um, I feel like I'm really good at creating environments that are creating environments in general, but also that mechanical stuff and communication stuff and power and all just, I'm just, I feel like that is something for me I'm pretty good at. And I like to do that. And I like to think about all that stuff. So probably because I wanted to be an astronaut. So <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cool. I think it kind of all came together. I think it's sort of full circle. Yeah. Do you know what? If William Shatner could go to space, maybe so can you one day. That's right. Maybe when I'm, when I'm 90, maybe I will go as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or sooner. Oh, it was so, honestly so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, maybe just uh, final uh, advice or parting words for the future women or whoever, sound designers specifically. <laughs> My advice is to really keep your eyes open for opportunities and become really good at networking and become really good at talking to other people and listening and being able to communicate uh, back what they're thinking and the things they're trying to communicate to you. Um, so those are skills that aren't really taught, but you can work on. So I, I think that's a really big piece of advice that gets kind of put by the wayside by after 
everybody suggests their favorite plugin, <laughs> you know, they're always, <laughs> they're always talking about that kind of stuff, but uh, it's the soft skills uh, to be in a freelance business that is very important. Um, and the, the sooner you can work on that stuff, the, I think the more successful you, you'll be. Um, and to keep, again, keep, keep your eyes open for opportunities. Like do, do sound design for, if you uh, see an unusual film that's being made that has no budget, try and do that. You know, you never know what will come out of it and what director will come out of it. Hey everybody, this is Tim from Tone Menders back here to wrap things up. Thanks so much to the Sound Girls podcast for that great interview. Be sure to find Sound Girls wherever you find podcasts and check out all of their other great episodes. Don't forget about the Sound Girls virtual conference coming up December 4th and 5th. They have an astounding 104 talks and sessions happening over two days. To sign up and find more information, check the events tab at soundgirls.org. Grab your tickets today. It's going to be a great time. Hope to see you there. My name is Timothy Meerhead, and on behalf of Katie and Tori at the Sound Girls podcast and their guest today, Kirsten Mate, thanks for listening. Thumbbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.